Thanksgiving, everyone. This week, as we take a much-needed moment with our loved ones and a break from recording, we wanted to re-up one of our favorite episodes from a few seasons ago of Saved by the City. And as we thought about episode to return to over Thanksgiving week, we figured what better conversation than one about food and hosting and the power of gathering your friends around a dinner table. And we know many of you have newly joined us since that episode aired and may have not heard it. And for those who did hear it, well, it's worth another listen, in our opinions. On this episode, we talked with our friend and author, Alyssa Wilkinson, who at the time was releasing her new book, Salty. We talked about cooking, great recipes, building community, our house women who changed the world one meal at a time. Plus, we are literally going to Alyssa's Together today Yay! for Thanksgiving dinner. She's a fantastic cook. She makes a perfect turkey. Her husband makes a mean holiday cocktail. I have enjoyed a few over the years. So we hope all of you have a great holiday around tables full of equally delicious food surrounded by rich conversation and lots of love. Listen again or for the first time and let us know what you think. As always, we'd love to social media or through email sbtcpodcast at religionnews.com and happy, happy thanksgiving. thanksgiving i'm paul brandeis rauschenbusch this week on the state of belief well, i felt like if anyone was going to be speaking up it was going to have to be somebody like me. Faithful conversations around sexual orientation and gender identity in Texas with Auburn Peterson of Another Story. Also, getting ready for the 2024 vote with Adam Friedman, organizing an election strategist at Interfaith Alliance. The State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet. Distributed by Religion News Service Podcasts and available on your favorite podcast app. I'm Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch. The State of Belief is a weekly podcast with a potent mix of spiritual wisdom, political strategy, and hopeful commentary in a series of inspiring conversations, celebrating our diversity, and bringing us together to, in the words of the great James Baldwin, achieve our country. The State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet. Distributed by Religion News Service Podcasts and available on your favorite podcast app. What's your favorite food? The cheese? But this is an impossible question. <laughs> Let me narrow it down. What would your last meal be? Ooh. Wiener schnitzel and spätzl. Spätzl is like an Austrian butter noodle. What about you? Buffalo wings and beer. <laughs> I knew about your buffalo wing obsession. Yes. But they have to be perfect. Like, it's my last meal. They have to be the best of the best buffalo wings, which means... Like not breaded side because they've been like double fried. Mm -hmm. They've got that good vinegary buffalo sauce that's just a good amount of heat so that you want to reach for that IPA and take a big swig. Bone in. Uh-huh. Yeah. Ranch or blue cheese? Blue cheese, baby. Mm. I mean, they say you shouldn't grocery shop when you're hungry, but you probably shouldn't podcast when you're hungry either. From Religion News Service, this is Saved by the City, a podcast from two single Christian women eating good in New York. I'm Caitlin Beatty. Stone. Hey. 
Hey there, curious minds. Get ready to embark on a unique journey at the crossroads of money and religion with our new podcast, Money Meet Meaning. The seductive effect of money, we think it can do the work that God does because there's something about money that does that. It's wild. I'm Amber Hacker. And I'm Tom Levinson. Tune in for a blend of wisdom and levity as we decode the path to a more meaningful relationship with money. I think giving, and this is a little crass, but I feel like it's the ultimate middle finger to money. It's liberating to give some away. This podcast is your gateway to a vibrant and thought-provoking exploration of the interconnectedness of wealth and spirituality. Join us as we unravel the surprising influence of ancient wisdom on modern finances. Faith pervades people's lives and our society. And because money is such an important part of people's lives, exploring that intersection of faith and money, I think is super, super interesting. Get ready to be informed, entertained, and inspired to transform your financial outlook with Money Meet Meaning. Available wherever you get your podcasts. All right. Relatedly, Mm -hmm. do you have a favorite food to cook? (laughs) You're having a bunch of people over. What's your go-to meal for a crowd? Yeah. I mean, it's a different, yeah. I don't know how to make Wiener schnitzel and spetzel, (laughs) but I do like making, this is going to sound fancier than it is, salad nissoir with green beans and hard-boiled eggs and tuna, but you can fancy it up if you want to do salmon. It's just, it's pretty straightforward. It's pretty healthy, but it also feels a little fancy. It also sounds really summery. Yeah, because no one wants to turn on their ovens right right now. So it is a very summery meal and it's like nice and cold and refreshing. Speaking of, I can't actually turn my oven on right now the gas is off in my building which also means I have no hot water oh my gosh and we're going on two weeks now I've been thinking about you (laughs) yeah because apparently there was level four corrosion in our pipes and this gas and so the most ominous thing was when they gave you hot plates it was it was a signal that like we don't know how long <laughs> this is going exactly. to last, but we know you need to eat. So what would you make, assuming you had access to a regular oven? Um, well, there's this recipe from Milk Street for these uh, spicy pork tacos um, and the taco meat. Well, it's really for the taco meat, um, but it's got different chilies in it and it's five calls for five pounds of pork butt and <laughs> sounds decadent it also takes five hours to make mm-hmm. and most of that is just like sitting in the oven right but i have make this multiple times for dinner parties and i have been foiled every single time <laughs> and Why? have ended up with five pounds of pork butt to eat by myself that doesn't sound terrible to have five pounds of pork meat to eat is it a hard recipe it's hard only in so much this that it takes that much time. And I just like the first time I got it, I was living in California and I was going to have a bunch of people over. And I, I don't even, I don't remember now what happened that I underestimated the amount of time that I needed. Mm-hmm. And so like everybody came over and it still had like three more hours that it needed to cook. <laughs> 
And Mm -hmm. so it just sat in the (laughs) oven cooking while ran to the grocery store and just got like chicken and made fajitas instead. (laughs) And so then after long after everyone left, the pork butt was ready. (laughs) So that's when I ate that by myself for a long time. And then another time I Mm-hmm. And my mom took one bite and was like, nope, that is way too spicy. Aww. And my dad ate like one taco. And then he was like, that was really good. And then he didn't touch any more of it. <laughs> so then it was just me. That's a pork butt over several days. And then so the you- other time I tried to make it for my birthday. Mm-hmm. And that was on, um, it was scheduled for uh, mid-March of 2020. And the city shut down. I was going to have that party. The most aspirational dinner party I have ever hosted was with my friend Sarah back in the Chicago suburbs. This was like over a decade ago. It was a Mediterranean feast. We made hand-rolled stuffed grape leaves. Yum. We made our own spanakopita and couscous and kebabs. We had baklava it was we wanted the feeling that just when guests thought that the dinner was over there would be more food coming out oh I love that (laughs) it was really sweet it was I think there were like 10 or 12 people there not everybody knew each other we wanted people to mingle Mm -hmm. and I don't know they were probably there for three or four hours you know and it wasn't fancy necessarily but it was what you hoped happens at a dinner party, which is that people connect and stay and talk for a long time over glasses of wine and feel comfortable and welcome. So you like to cook? I do. I will say my cooking is very practical. I'm not someone Mm. who necessarily wants to try a ton of new recipes or try a ton of recipes that have like really unusual ingredients. Like if I can't find it at Trader Joe's or Mm -hmm. Key Foods, I'm probably Mm -hmm. not going to make it unless it's a special occasion. My mom is a really, she's a good cook. She's not a fancy cook, but we say in our family, she can quote unquote, like whip up a good meal in 30 minutes or less. And I, I take a very similar approach, something that is relatively straightforward, but also requires some prep and will be ready in 30 minutes and is relatively healthy. Although I did Mm -hmm. just buy all the ingredients for this um, cheesy pasta bake. So whatever. Mm. If it's a holiday or like a long weekend or a special occasion, that's when I will try a new fancy recipe. Over Easter this year, I made a lamb tagine over couscous. Oh, nice. And bought the lamb at like a butcher shop in Brooklyn. And of course, enjoyed several glasses of red wine (laughs) with it. Mm -hmm. So if I'm opening up a bottle of wine to have with dinner, that's usually an indication that it's like a fancy meal. Yeah. But I don't do that very much. It doesn't sound like you naturally gravitate to cooking. I feel like I'm getting there. (laughs) Uh, Sort of the opposite. Like, I feel like, I mean, food just, of course, sort of took like a lower level of importance in my family. My parents were very busy. Mm. They had a lot going on. They were very active in the community and food was usually like a just get it done kind of. So I feel like I'm the opposite in that I I got to be kind of good at this very special things like the five hour 
um, pork tacos or like mm-hmm. making like these special meals for when people elaborate on a lot of work. But the sort of day-to-day like tedium of mm-hmm. just like go to the grocery store, buy your groceries for the week, make mm-hmm. breakfast, lunch, and dinner every day. Yes. And this, the sort of like, I would just always like either overdo it or I wouldn't do it. You know, I would just mm. like make a meal that took like an hour and a half. And then I'm like, gosh, how does anyone ever cook? And so then, and then I'd like just do takeout or whatever. So I think the pandemic mm. actually started to be like, I have to cook at home. I have got to figure this out. Right. And um, I did like a meal service, you know, like mm-hmm. um, HelloFresh, kind of those things for a while. And that was helpful because I kind of started to learn like, oh, this is what ingredients are. And this is, you always cook these things the same. Like, I just started mm-hmm. to like learn um, methods and things that I really shouldn't have been learning in my 30s, you know. It, it has started to feel more recently. I haven't always felt this way. But it has started to feel more recently like, oh my gosh, every time you buy groceries, it lasts for like a week. You have to keep doing it. You just have to keep doing it. There's never an end. Yes. It's constant. We have to eat, you know. I know. And I suppose you could do takeout and eating out. But then you think, well, that's really expensive over time. I get stuck in the tedium of it. Like, Mm -hmm. oh, I okay. It's another morning. I guess I need to fry an egg again. I thought I just did this. I know. I know. And of course I get in ruts and it's just like, but I am finding like, I'm trying to find more joy in it. And actually I would say like one of the biggest things I maybe regret is dropping out of home ec in seventh Mm. grade Mm -hmm. (laughs) because I was like a burgeoning feminist and I was like, ugh. Why do the girls have to take home ec and the boys take shop class? And so I just like dropped out and like in protest skills. And <laughs> now, and I still do think it's dumb that boys did shop and girls did home ec. And I think both of them should do both of them. The boys and girls yes. should both take shop and should both yes. do home ec. We should learn how to fix tires and use drills. <laughs> Wait, do people fix tires? Is that a thing? No. (laughs) Change tires. Change tires. Neither Patch tires. You could also patch tires. Yes, I suppose. But we obviously did not take shop class. No. And I've learned some of those skills later. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I think it would have just been nice. Like, it would have been nice to have learned those skills and also, like, learned basics for cooking and and that sort of stuff. And I feel like, you know, I feel like I did myself a real disservice there. I know I took home economics in junior high. I know we baked. I know we Mm -hmm. sewed. I think I learned the cooking from my mom. The, The division of labor in my parents' home was and still is mom cooks dinner and dad cleans up afterwards. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. And they share tons of other tasks there. I would not describe them as like <laughs> mom in her pearls and heels. Like <laughs> whatever you want, dearie. You know, it's not like that at all. Right. But those, that division of labor just reflects what they're naturally good at, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but it never, it never felt to me like women's work in a denigrating way because I think I could see that my mom actually was good at it and she enjoyed it 
it wasn't like put upon her. I wish I had seen it that way. I mean, I think it, it wasn't did cooking and my mom did cooking. Um, but neither of them really enjoyed it and neither of them really like mm. other than like we, when we would grill. That was like a big thing. They like to grill. But Th- um, that explains <laughs> I feel like that explains the wings obsession <laughs> as well as the pork butt. Yeah. Like, like fancy meats. Like smoked meats. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) One thing you need to know about Roxy, she's really into smoked meats. One of our friends here in New York has managed to host some really great dinner parties over the years. Space be darned. And we're going to talk to her in just a few minutes. Alyssa Wilkinson. Lessons on eating, drinking, and living from revolutionary women. She also made us pizza last summer with herbs from her garden, and it was pretty dreamy. Mm. So I started to think about meals as less about just entertaining and more about ways for people to kind of become more rooted in whatever it was that they really cared about. Our conversation with Alyssa is coming up after the break. Religion News Service is an independent, award-winning source of global reporting on religion, spirituality, culture, and ethics. For the best in religion reporting, religionnews.com. And if you like what we're doing at Say by the City, as usual, let us know. Give us a rating or a review, which goes a long way to helping get the word out about the show. Or send us an podcast at religionnews.com. All right, Caitlin, before we bring Alyssa on, let's do a little, a little quick-fire food takes. Mmm. Ready? I'm salivating. Coffee or tea? Oh, coffee. 100%. 100%. What about you? Do you drink tea? Mm, I like dabble in it occasionally and think that I should like it. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Andy Crouch drinks tea. Mm, He would. (laughs) All right. Martini or pina colada? Oh. Oh. Honey. (laughs) Martinis all the way. Dirty gin martini served extremely cold. I'm with you, except I prefer a Gibson. So Mm, I like my martini with an onion. Our guest today does as well. French fries or chocolate cake? I think I'm going to go with chocolate cake as long as it's (gasps) moist. We uh, One we disagree on. Well, French fries, they just have to be... There's... (laughs) There's such a variety in quality. Mm, yeah. Who has the best French fries? I really I really love them all. I mean, occasionally I'm like, this is not a great French fry. I'm still going to eat it. But <laughs> I mean, my favorite mm-hmm. are shoestring fries, like a more mm. a thinner. Mm-hmm. Um, I love like mussels and fries. Mm-hmm. Well, you have um, to call them frites then. Frites. <laughs> With mayonnaise. <laughs> Which brings us back to season one. You used this as a metaphor to talk about faith. (laughs) Oh, what a journey. We've been on a journey, yes. It's breakfast. French Mm. toast or bacon and eggs? Sweet or savory? Yeah, Uh, uh, bacon and eggs. Definitely savory. I, you know, if I'm with someone out and they order something sweet, you're like, uh, can I have a bite? Yeah, that's what I, I <laughs> just, want. I want one bite of it. I want a bite of the sweet, Same. but for the whole meal, I want savory. Same. Hot dogs or hamburgers? Hamburgers. Mm. 
I do like hot dogs. Like, like if I'm, again, I feel for me, a lot of food is about context. So if I'm at mm. a baseball game, I'll get a hot dog. But mm-hmm. if I'm at a barbecue and you're like hot dog or hamburger, I'm a- mm-hmm. pumpkin or pecan pie. Ooh, pumpkin. I actually mm. really like pumpkin pie. And this is, as a kid, I would have said pecan. But what changed it for you? I became more sophisticated. <laughs> See, I think of pecan pie as more sophisticated for some reason. Maybe because it's like less popular. Yeah, I think the pumpkin spiced latte is like ruined pumpkin for us all. That is so true. I'm not into the PSLs, y'all. No, I'm not either. They're just too sweet. I'm sensing that we both have a savory palate. Yes, I think that is right. I like my food salty and spicy. Just like us. We are so pleased to be joined by Alyssa Wilkinson, who is a film critic and author of the new book, Salty, Lessons on Eating, Drinking, and Living from Revolutionary Women. She is also a New York City resident. I am. Go Brooklyn. And Roxy and I have enjoyed many meals that you have prepared. Yes. Anxious for the next one. Me too. Yeah. You love food. You love to cook food and you love to share cooked food with other people. So could Roxy and I come over for a cooked meal tonight? We were just wondering (laughs) if you could uh, fit that in to your schedule. I'm sure I have some pizza dough in the freezer or something. (laughs) (laughs) We will accept that gladly. So your book is as delightful as the conversation we've already begun to have because people just love food and we Mm -hmm. love sharing recipes and we love talking about our food and we love having people over for our food. But what made you want to write like a food and revolutionary women Mm -hmm. and combine those things together? Like where did this book idea come from? I think it's a kind of great way into both topics. Like I love biographies. I especially love group biographies because I just think it's like interesting to see how people live their lives. Mm -hmm. And then I love reading good food writing. And so it Mm. seemed like if I could pick a lot of people who I found interesting, then I wouldn't mind just reading all their biographies and everything about them and trying to find a way into their lives through food. And for some people, it was really easy because they write about food. Mm-hmm. Like I have um, Lori Colwin in the book and she's a novelist, but she also wrote several books called Home Cooking that are like favorites of people who like food writing. But then I, I sort of threw a couple people on the pile thinking like, I don't really know what their connection to this topic is, but everybody eats food. So like surely something (laughs) will come up. So it ended up being a really interesting way to get to know some of these women. And some of them I didn't really know a whole lot about. And I got to kind of learn their lives and Mm. find inspiration in them. As women living alone, food kind of becomes just like a thing. I I have to feed myself and making meals for one person is like it doesn't it doesn't really feel like yeah an act of community or revolution or any of those things it's just practical so mm-hmm. give me some <laughs> tips for how to make cooking and eating more fun or more ritualistic or more meaningful when it's like just for you 
this sounds silly, but I think it's true that often the problem when we cook for ourselves is that we don't flavor things enough. Mm. Um, like the flavor and the textures really, really matter. I mean, even when I eat scrambled eggs, I, I get really funky with the spices that I put in. Mm-hmm. We recently found one that was a mixture made for you know, pastrami salmon like that you can get at the bagel shop. And so it's the flavorings of that. And but I I can put that in the eggs and it tastes really delicious. And then you Mm -hmm. eat it with like, I don't know, rosemary crackers or something. And it's just like something mentally there for me makes me feel like I have done something for myself, Mm -hmm. even though Mm -hmm. I really haven't. And then if I can, you know, not that martinis are the fix for everything, but they are the fix for some things, right? But if I can do that and sort of give myself that, I know a lot of people will say, you know, sit down and like, don't turn on your TV or look at your phone. And I don't, I'm sure that's all really good if you do it, but like, I wouldn't normally. (laughs) I am always watching something while I'm eating. But I think having that like, pungency of flavor and taste and texture in whatever the small thing is that you're making, even if it's just convenience food, really mm-hmm. punches it up a notch. So this isn't <laughs> this isn't so much a question, more of a comment, <laughs> which I know we all love hearing that. Uh-huh. <laughs> Probably for our not so much our generation, but for our mom's generation and mm-hmm. even our grandmother's generation, cooking and the kitchen represented this domesticity that obviously mm-hmm. fit into tr- traditional gender roles and felt like denigrating work, like, or mm-hmm. a, a symbol of women's subservience. But it strikes me that for a lot of the women that you're writing about in Salty, the kitchen and the work of making and sharing food is a place of creativity and agency and self-expression yeah and and I think you you actually embody that really well too (laughs) with that (laughs) well that's very nice well so I was brought up around a very fundamentalist patriarchal Christian community Mm -hmm. 90s homeschoolers (laughs) and they thought of cooking as women's work and, you know, other things as men's work. And so I would say growing up, I learned to do a lot of those things and then sort of resisted it for that reason. Mm -hmm. But when I moved to New York, I was 21. I was just out of college. And I had a small group of friends, one of whom was a woman who was working in real estate. She was like working for a real estate company, but she had gone to culinary school. And so she would cook for us sometimes and all kinds of things. I remember, you know, Cornish hens, or I think I write in the book about the time that she kind of rooted around in somebody's cabinets and came out with ingredients for chocolate chip cookies and then like added some orange zest to them. And it had just like never occurred to me that that's the kind of creativity Mm -hmm. you could exercise, I guess, in the kitchen, like not following a recipe, just following Mm. your nose and kind of what felt right? Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. then researching these uh, different women in the book, you know, none of them really at all fit into that typical Mm kind of homemaker, you know, routine that, you know, the closest is Alice Toklas, but she was keeping house for, you know, Gertrude Stein. That was in no way a typical relationship, (laughs) especially at the time. Mm -hmm. So I think some of the more interesting things that I ran into were like, We have Edna Lewis, who 
most of her cooking is happening at a cafe where she, a black woman, is a partner, and that was basically unheard of. And there's like mm-hmm. hordes of celebrities coming through her kitchen, and Truman Capote is coming back to beg for biscuits. And, you know, it's just like not typical. And she's showing something that people didn't really know could be. Or Ella Baker, you know, is a civil rights activist and sort of famously almost never did cook at home. Hmm even though she could. And the reason largely was that she really felt that the civil rights movement at the time was overly patriarchal. She really had a lot of beef with the leaders, including Martin Luther King, for that specific reason. And Mm -hmm. she was really committed to living the world that she wanted to exist. But she did all of her organizing and kind of listening to people and traveling at people's kitchen tables. I mean, she was Mm. mostly Mm -hmm. she lived in New York, but she's mostly traveling in the South, talking to people, finding out what communities needed. And like you're in the South visiting people, you're going to eat. That's how it's going to work. Right. Or Hannah Arendt's sort of her actual cocktail parties are where all these intellectuals in sort of the immediate post-war era are getting pretty sloshed and also like Mm -hmm. hanging out and really talking about important things, Mm -hmm. hashing out important ideas, fighting with each other, all that kind of stuff. And this is all happening over food. So I started to think about meals as less about just entertaining and more about ways for people to kind of become more rooted in whatever it was that they really cared about. Mm -hmm. I think like That's really important to me because there is this sense of performativity around food, I think, for Mm -hmm. people our age. Mm -hmm. Like you have to Instagram your parties and there's even a lot of, you know, I think very admirable movements to like create intentional dinner parties for people to meet one another. And I love this. But a whole lot of it seems like it's also designed to be photographed (laughs) and put on Instagram Mm -hmm. or whatever. And there's nothing particularly wrong with that. But it's not fulfilling the full potential that's there, I think. I want to just read something that you wrote in the intro that I thought kind of captures what we're talking about right now. You say, it turns out the little world that's been created here at this dinner party is not just a place to make friends. It's not a place designed to make you admire someone's outfits or envy their real estate. It's a more dangerous space. A gathering where flinty iron strikes against iron, throwing sparks on your own mind. It's where what you thought you knew prodded and pulled and stretched and even snapped. And I just really like that because I think what you're describing is, yes, the food is important. In fact, it's the facilitator in many ways and even the way that you arrange it or the timing of it. But what you're describing seems to be this connection between the dinner party and the revolutionary aspect. Yeah. Like we're, we're bringing these people together to do something in the world. Mm. And maybe mm-hmm. that's just to create really great friendship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you just don't know who you're going to encounter hopefully at a dinner party and how they're going to challenge your conception of the world, mm-hmm. especially at a party that you're being invited to where, you know, the host, but you don't know everybody else in the room. Mm-hmm. It's so different. I think from our normal context like if I go to work I basically know everybody and kind of know like what their deal is and there are certain topics that are basically off limits 
or if I'm just like meeting you guys for a drink, like that's great and so fun, but we definitely know each other and know kind of what we think about stuff. Mm-hmm. There's not a lot of flinty iron flying because we're all like, <laughs> yeah, I agree with you. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> yeah. And I need, I, you know, we need those spaces. It's not yeah. to discount them, but a, a really well put together dinner party should hopefully be a little more interesting and challenging. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And maybe you leave having made a friend who like is going to alter the course of your life in some way that you weren't mm-hmm. expecting or like give you new perspective or just be like a new person in your life. We have a whole set of friends in our lives who we only really know because we kind of got almost like trapped in a corner of a birthday party talking to one of them Mm. once. And Mm -hmm. now, you know, these are our friends and it's just like a funny kind of thing that happens in these situations. And I am not a person who enjoys big parties. If I do, I like to kind of watch people and I'm not like hugely into talking to people I don't know. But at a dinner party in particular, you have to. There's like eight people there probably, you know, or 10. And you can't Mm -hmm. just say nothing. It's a different situation. All of the women that you write about in Salty have this exuberance about their embrace of life. Mm -hmm. And it reminded me of kind of the opposite message that a lot of us get. I think not only about food, it spills over into our approach to life, which is always moderating, always controlling, Mm -hmm. always measuring things out. Don't enjoy yourself too much. All of us grew up in, I don't know if it was the height of diet culture, but in a bad time (laughs) (laughs) for women. For sure. All sorts of messages growing up about being thin and restricting your food and portion control. Yeah, it doesn't. I mean, it just feels like in your book that it's like these women like live capital L-I-V-E. Yes. And that includes food and this embrace and just like a savoring. Mm-hmm. It seems like so many of the messages of the world to women maybe especially have been about scarcity. And yeah. Like cutting ourselves off from these sources of mm-hmm. joy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I was writing a food book about women in the 20th century. This was mm-hmm. obviously something that I was thinking like, do I talk about this? How would I talk about this? But there are kind of two women who brought it up on their own. Mm-hmm. Lori Colwin does write a little bit about diets and things like that in her books Home Home Cooking and More Home Cooking, which were published in the 80s. Mm. they're such fun books to read because she's just like very like whatever like do what you want Mm. she also at some point is like I have hypertension and my doctor has told me to cut back on salt and so she uses that as an excuse to get creative (laughs) Mm. and so that's a little bit of what's going on in her book is like when she feels the need to or has the medical reason to get rid of something in her diet or like literally the food she's eating, then she uses it as an excuse to find a way to make something beautiful and flavorful and amazing out of it Mm. and to enjoy that thing. But the more interesting one was Maya Angelou, who, you know, most people know as a poet and a novel or, you know, novelist, memoir writer, just sort of artist extraordinaire. But she did actually write two cookbooks. <laughs> I did not know that. I did not either. And apparently she was like a famous host. That actually mm. surprises me less. Mm-hmm. But one of them, I realized digging into it was actually, I mean, it would be classified as a diet cookbook, mm. which I was like, oh, interesting. But she said, well, 
something like my cholesterol was high and my doctor said you have to figure something out. And she she's like, I realized that I didn't want to stop eating the things I love. So I just eat them till I'm full, which sounds a little bit like... I don't know, certain diets I've heard of. But for her, it was very much like a recognition that everything we eat is good. Like she doesn't say cut this food out of your diet. She writes this hilarious poem in 1983 about her visit to a health food diner, which 1983 health food diners were like really bleak. But she sort of (laughs) writes about how like one stanza is no sprouted wheat and soya shoots and Brussels in a cake carrot straw and spinach raw today I need a steak and she ends every stanza with like you know I don't want like tofu I want you know loins of pork and chicken thighs and standing ribs so prime and she talks about how she prefers any place that saves a space for smoking carnivores (laughs) Mm. (laughs) which is very Mm -hmm. funny but what Mm -hmm. you realize when you're reading her because her diet cookbook has things like rib steaks with parsley butter, eggplant parmesan, baked eggs with two kinds of cheese, mashed sweet potatoes <laughs> with Grand Marnier, which sounds incredible. Mm-hmm. And she goes on and on and on about how her favorite thing in the whole world is a hot dog with raw onions and chili on it and a beer. And she says, if anyone calls me, I just don't answer the phone while I'm eating these. So for her, I think a lot of it was knowing how to cook southern food, first of all, that it was so integral to her person that she she wouldn't get rid of it but for her it was like I'm gonna just listen to my body and like when I'm full I'm not gonna keep eating I'm just not gonna have that Mm. response and that was her answer now Mm -hmm. there's all kinds of reasons that that even that can be problematic for some people but I think Mm -hmm. this like excuse to to be creative or to eat the things you really love that are you know garlic steaks and parsley butter but maybe you know, change your consumption habits a little bit so that your doctor will be happy with your lowered cholesterol. That was like a much better approach, I think, Mm. than a lot of the things that we see. Mm -hmm. Certainly, if you pull up any diet cookbook from the 20th century, it's like a nightmare. And her (laughs) approach was just so full of joy and enjoyment Mm -hmm. and happiness. Mm. It's a it's a different, different approach. I am ready to wrap this Friday and get martinis and yes have a dinner party so i know that is how i feel after this conversation all this talk of well i I will tell you my best recipe in the book as a freebie which is not really a recipe at all and in fact it's buried into the martini recipe so i have a recipe for a gibson in there Mm -hmm. the gibson of course is a, a dry gin martini with pickled onions in it and my favorite thing to accompany it with is you, you get some really good salty potato chips and then you mm-hmm. open a little thingy of anchovy fillets and then you put the anchovy on top of the potato chip and it's like the saltiest, most pungent mm-hmm. thing you've ever had and the martini hits just right at the end of that. That sounds so good. I love how much you love salty and briny things. I really do. Like, give me a salty chip and anchovies mm-hmm. over like chocolate cake any day. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you could have it with mineral water if you're not doing martinis. It will have the same effect. Mm -hmm. It's true. Mm -hmm. We are Mm -hmm. all on the same page here. Yes. (laughs) One thing I will say is that I have not been invited to enough salons in New York. (laughs) Like, not saloons, 
nor Absolutely. hair salons. No, I want to I want to be invited to these like intellectual cocktail parties where we like politics and literature and it's the same, you know, it's the same like group of of movers and shakers. I feel like I was promised that <laughs> by the books that I read about like mm, you and Andy Warhol and like these these you know like Alyssa talks about them in her book like Hannah Arendt's parties on Riverside Drive a block away from me all of these intellectuals that were like literally getting together post World War II and like planning what the what world they were going to build post World mm-hmm. War II and like these are people that actually were part of building that world. Yes, we tend, I mean, I'm probably just in the wrong circles. I'm sure this mm-hmm. is actually happening all the time in New York. <laughs> but there's a sense, and you get this in the stories of a lot of the people that Alyssa writes about, meals together aren't just about consumption and enjoyment and pleasure. They're also a space to gather and talk about ideas mm-hmm. and even to disagree, like to really hash out how the world is and how we think it should be. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if we are in a time when people shy away from those conversations because of the appearance of conflict or people don't have as, they don't feel like they have as much invested in the future. Like we're just Mm. in a malaise or a sense that nothing that we do is really going to make a difference. So why bother? Whereas so many of the people in Alyssa's book were really at a time where you felt like the world was changing in dramatic ways and you could be part of the change. But I'm also wondering after hearing you say, maybe we're just not in the right circles is maybe we are, maybe we're just in a different circle. Like maybe our circles are having these great conversations too. Like when we're at Alyssa's, like there's, you know, like we've, we do have about sometimes about like Southern Baptists and <laughs> maybe that's not going to change the world, <laughs> but mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. but I do, I, I mean, I think there is like a spirit at least sometimes around our dinner tables. Uh, we want to see the world be better. And what does that look like? And, um, or maybe, and maybe that's what it was like for them too. Maybe they were actually just complaining a lot. I don't know. <laughs> like there is something about sharing a meal together that fosters a spirit of camaraderie or mm-hmm. like a, like a level playing field. Like we all are embodied beings who need to eat. Mm-hmm. And, we're gathering here. We're gather like gathering here reminds us of sharing something, not just in terms of food, but also in terms of hopes and dreams and outlook on life. And a meal is a way of kind of forging that or solidifying it. Yeah. And I think that's maybe that's one of the things to hear that I liked in Alyssa's what we've talked about today is like, I think there's an idea, or I had an idea, um, that serious people, like mm-hmm. people who were planning revolutions, like food didn't matter. They would just like eat to feed, eat because they had to get back mm-hmm. to the real work of, you know, of the revolution. But what I love thinking about here is like these people in her, these women in her book and like the conversations we've had today, like food, like the pleasure of the food, the savoring of the food made these women interesting and part of what made them larger than life and part of what made them feel like it was worth like like living was worth fighting for um and making a better life like they weren't sort of away from the pleasures of the world because they felt like they had to be out there like saving the world you know 
so many of the women in Alyssa's book, you got the sense that they they like gulped up life. Mm, I like that. They were there to enjoy it all, to experience it all. They weren't, they didn't shy away from pleasure, but they also didn't shy away from difficult challenges in their moment. And that feels like a good corrective for a lot of women. I agree. City is a religion news service production. The producer is Jay Woodward, and his cookbook of choice, by the way, is the 1975 edition, Joy of Cooking. Our consulting editor is Paul O'Donnell, and we get production assistance from Julia Wink. Chaz Rousseau put together our look, and Martin Fowler wrote our theme music. We are Roxy Stone and Caitlin Beatty. Thanks, Thanks for listening. For listening. <laughs> to the pork butt. 